Uh, back in 2015, Starbucks coffee shops in America announced the release of a brand new coffee drink. Just like a coffee, but not like coffee as you know it. Not like the old coffee. They said once you taste it, you'll never go back. All the way from Australia, drum roll, we present the flat white. Uh, they advertised it as no gimmicks, no special syrups or additives, a double shot of espresso with a rich brown crema served with silky smooth milk rather than dollops of foamy bubbles and in a small 200ml cup instead of the usual Starbucks bucket. Uh, it created quite a stir in America. I thought I'd get at least a smile from that, but anyway. Uh, it seems like an obvious choice, doesn't it? Go for the flat white. But eight years on, apparently Americans mostly have stayed with the coffee they're used to. Perfectly happy with their American-style, weak filter coffee. And in general, it seems they can't understand what all the fuss is about. Now, it's that same sort of reaction Jesus is receiving here. He's offering something new, like the old, but completely different. A new way of knowing God. A new way of living out that faith. And it's not going to be a comfortable fit when the new meets the old. Because they're so different. Uh, Jesus gives a picture of what it's like down at the end of the chapter, down in verse 36. He says, you can't sew new cloth onto an old shirt. The main reason, I think, is, what this, is that the new cloth will shrink when you wash it and it'll tear the old shirt again. Uh, new and old don't go together. New cloth has to be joined to a new shirt. Uh, then he says it's the same with wine. New wine has to go into new wineskins. Uh, you put the grape juice into a new wineskin that's soft and flexible and so that as the, the grape juice ferments and gives off gas, the, the skins will expand and they'll contain the wine. If you used an old, stiff wine skin, it would just explode. Now that explosion, it's that same sort of reaction that the old religion of the Pharisees have when the new wine of Jesus comes along. They're inflexible. They don't want to change. And they're going to explode. Jesus comes and says there has to be changes. Uh, there has to be new wine skins. There has to be new attitudes, new ways of thinking. Jesus understands the scriptures differently from these so-called experts. So he's doing things differently. He's accepting different sorts of people that the others reject. He's announced it in chapter 4. Do you remember last week? He's come to preach good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom to prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, releasing the oppressed. He's starting a revolution. And now in chapter 5, we see this revolution beginning. He begins by introducing a new kind of work. Uh, as always, Jesus is preaching, the start of chapter 5. He's down by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the crowds are so big, they're, they're pushing him right to the edge of the lake. Uh, he looks around, he sees two boats, partners in the fishing business. He hops into one and he asks the owner, Simon, to push the boat out just a few metres uh, from the shore. Uh, he'll keep teaching from there. Uh, the crowds won't be able to crowd him. 
Uh, the acoustics are probably pretty good, if you think. Sound travels well across water. Hill behind, you can just imagine it. Uh, it would be great. Now, there's Simon sitting up the other end of the boat. Uh, perhaps he's listening. Perhaps he's snoozing. Uh, and at the end of the day, when the crowds have all drifted off, Jesus looks at Simon and he says, verse 4, Put out into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. Simon groans. But Master, we worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But yet for some reason he obeys. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, he provides the nets, the boats, the muscles and the faith and Jesus provides the fish. Somehow he moves them from wherever they are in the lake into the nets. Uh, this is a new style of fishing partnership. Not just one boat and another with the net in between, <laughs> but one boat with Jesus moving the fish. Uh, the nets are so full they begin to tear. And look at Simon's reaction. After he gets over his shock, verse 8, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. It wasn't until a miracle... Simon sees who Jesus is. He'd sat in a boat all day but hadn't seen it. He'd heard him speak all day, maybe even heal people, but still not understood who Jesus was. But when he saw how Jesus controlled creation without a word, Simon saw God himself, power, purity, supreme authority, absolute holiness and it shook him and just like anyone does who sees God he recognises his own sin his own unworthiness when Moses uh, met God at the burning bush he hid his face uh, when Isaiah was confronted with a vision of God on a throne, he cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Uh, if you're a Christian, and many of us are, then you will have experienced something like that. Uh, your eyes finally being opened and you understand who Jesus is and who you are in comparison. A helpless sinner who deserves nothing. And yet at the same time as recognising your own sin, if you're a Christian, then you've come to Jesus as someone who's offered you grace. Uh, when was that moment for you? Or maybe it hasn't happened for you. Maybe you're like Simon. Maybe you've been sitting up the end of the boat, been sitting here in church for months or years. You've heard about Jesus. You've watched him. But you've never truly seen him. Well, maybe today is that day for you. Follow the example of Simon. Look at what happens next. Simon wants Jesus to go away from him. Sin and powerful holiness, they don't mix. A powerful holiness will destroy sin. Normally, except with Jesus. Jesus invites Simon. Don't run away, Simon. Come anyway. Don't be afraid, he says. 
Sin, your sin won't scare me away. Instead of going, come and follow me. Jesus welcomes sinners and deals with sin. That's why he's come. And then he offers Simon a new kind of work. Verse 10, he'll be catching people, not fish. Leave your fishing nets, he says. Come and catch men. It's not going to be like the work that you used to do. Its, it's nature is not going to be the same, where you fish for whole nights and have no success. Your target will be different, but the whole technique will have changed because now you'll be in a partnership with Jesus. He'll provide the catch by the bucket load, just like today's fishing. Simon just has to provide the nets and the muscles and the faith. Now that's actually what our people catching is like as well. Sometimes we call it evangelism. We sometimes see it as dull and empty and a waste of time, like Simon's night fishing was. We desperately, hopefully, throw nets out and not sure if we'll ever get anyone interested. But Jesus promises that when we follow him, when we trust him, catching people will be an effective partnership. We'll provide the faith and the nets and the muscles, but Jesus will be softening hearts. He'll be opening eyes. He'll be moving people towards nets. Now that's a great encouragement, isn't it? To keep fishing, to keep speaking to your friends and your family and your colleagues about Jesus. Because it's not a matter of luck. It's not even a matter of your skill. It's Jesus who moves things around. Jesus who, who changes the hearts of your fathers or your husbands or your wives or your children or your friends or your neighbours. So keep fishing. Well, Simon and his friends like the sound of what Jesus is offering, so they leave everything, we're told, including two boats full of fish, and and they follow Jesus. Uh, Because Jesus was offering something new, and they grabbed at it with both hands. Well, as Simon and his mates continue uh, to follow Jesus, uh, they learn about the new way that Jesus brings. Uh, We see a new kind of clean as he deals with leprosy. Uh, Verse 12, he meets a man covered in leprosy. He's in despair. And look at his heartbreaking uh, words to Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He's heard the stories. He doesn't doubt Jesus has the power. He just doubts his willingness. He doesn't feel like he deserves anything from Jesus. And so he hardly dares to ask. Are you like that sometimes? Uh, Knowing up here that Jesus can answer your prayer, but doubting whether you deserve it or whether he's interested in you. You're not important enough or talented enough. And you think surely Jesus has better things to do better people to listen to. Surely he's not interested in me. And so we don't ask, or we ask without believing. 
but Jesus is willing. Just as he welcomes Simon in his sin, he welcomes this man in his uncleanness. Verse 13, he reached out and touched the man, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. He's not just ready and willing, he's able, able to cleanse him. And notice what he does, he shows his willingness, he touches the man. Probably the first physical touch he's received since he caught leprosy. It's a touch that communicates Jesus' heart as much as Jesus' words. And notice what happens. Clean invades unclean and the leper is healed. Now that's the opposite of the way the Old Testament said it worked. The Old Testament said that a clean person becomes unclean, he catches it from the leper. The impurity is transferred. But here the opposite is happening. Clean is being transferred. Clean purifies unclean. And the leper is healed. It's a new sort of clean. Well, from verse 17, Jesus goes one step further. He has cleansed the outside Now he will do the same on the inside. He'll clean the inside, which is much more important. He will heal sins as well as healing skin. The crowds continue to build uh, and the house Jesus is teaching uh, is full of people, verse 17, uh, including religious leaders who've travelled all the way from Jerusalem. Uh, The power of the Lord is with Jesus and so he's healing the sick and everyone wants to be part of that. There are some pretty desperate people around. Verse 19, some men take the roof off to get their paralysed friend to Jesus. Uh, Baked mud, they sort of hack away with sticks or something and it cracks and the bits of dirt drop down on Jesus and he looks up and before he knows it, there's this man lying in front of Jesus on a stretcher with his friends peering in the hole to see what's going on. Everyone knows what this man needs. So what does Jesus do? Verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, I think that's the faith of the man as well as his friends, uh, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. People think, what? Forgiven sins? Uh, Everyone can see what this man needs. He needs legs that work. What's forgiven sins got to do with it? Well, that's one question. The, the other question is what the religious leaders are thinking. Verse 21, who does God think he is? Uh, sorry, who does Jesus think he is? God is the only one who can forgive sins. Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so verse 23, he compares the actions. And he says, healing legs, forgiving sins. Which is easier to say that you will do? I can say I forgive your sins, but who who knows whether it's worked? Anyone can say it, uh, but you can't prove it. But if you say your legs are healed, that's much harder to fake, isn't it? It's pretty obvious whether you can actually do it or not. And so follow the logic of what Jesus does, verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... 
He says to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. To prove he can forgive sins, the thing that's easy to say but hard to prove, he'll fix the legs, the thing that's easier to prove. And that's what he does. He says to the man, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man trusts Jesus' words and he goes home praising God with legs that work and sins that are forgiven. He's got the best of both. He's fixed on the outside and he's clean on the inside. A new kind of healing. And the crowds love it. Well, next, verse 27, we meet Levi, uh, a rotten tax collector, uh, someone else who needs forgiving. Uh, We see here a new type of follower. He's the complete outsider. Jesus says to him, follow me. Levi, who, me? No one's ever asked, invited him like this. Uh, No one's ever accepted him completely, offering a fresh start, until Jesus comes along. He accepts Jesus' offer. He leaves everything, just like Simon. He's overjoyed at what he's discovered. He throws a big party. Verse 29, all of his tax collector mates. He just wants to share Jesus with his friends. But once again, the religious leaders are watching. And they can't understand Jesus' rules for membership. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is what happens when the new of Jesus meets the old of the Jewish system. You see, for the old, religious equals respectable and above reproach. And so they will avoid anyone who might contaminate them, harm their reputation. The way they think about it, a bad person will influence their goodness. But once again, Jesus turns that around. Good influences bad and transforms bad. He mixes with all sorts of people. He's interested in a new sort of follower, a revolutionary disciple, not someone who's acceptable or respectable, but someone who's unacceptable and disrespectable. He's not after someone who's healthy, but he's after sick people. Do you see there in verse 31? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Anyone who thinks they are good already is not interested in Jesus. People like the Pharisees. And perhaps, I'm guessing, people like your friends and workmates. Perhaps you've heard something like this. I'm basically a good person. Thanks very much. I don't need God. I'm not interested. Life's going fine. Jesus can't work with people like that. They're not followers. They're too busy doing their own thing to follow someone like Jesus. Jesus wants people who know they need help. People like Simon, who recognises he's a sinner. People like the leper, who want to be clean. The paralysed man who has faith. Levi, the tax collector. Now, all of that is good news for us, isn't it? Because it means there's not 
a level we need to beat or clear. There are not admission requirements that we have to pass. We need forgiving. Our church is not a club for special people who meet the selection rules. Our church is a hospital for sick people. All of us are terminally ill. We need someone to deal with our sin. Is that how you see yourself? Well, the Pharisees haven't finished with Jesus yet. They're not just troubled that Jesus parties with the wrong people. They're troubled that he's partying at all. Good people don't have fun. That seems to be their rule. Uh, Do you see verse 33? They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Uh, They say at least John's disciples look like they're religious. Your disciples look like a bunch of drunks. But look at what Jesus says. He's bringing something new. When people have something to be happy about, you can't stop them celebrating. Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Jesus is the bridegroom. The guests are the people who are following him. It's time to celebrate. Like Levi. He's been forgiven, accepted. His life has started new. He's had a huge weight of guilt removed he's just got to share the joy I think this difference between celebrating and being uh, just sad or, or fasting because I think it's about whether you think God is close or distant it seemed like the old way was God is distant we have to fast and pray to to bring him close to get his attention as a sign of mourning because God is not acting. And yet Jesus is saying here, the new way, now that I've arrived, the bridegroom is here, it's party time. Jesus is close. Now in lots of ways that's the Christian experience. I'll say lots of ways and I'll clarify it in a moment. Life for Christians should be a joyful celebration. We have purpose. We have forgiven sins. We have contentment and peace and joy. All of those things come because Jesus lives with us by his Holy Spirit. He is close, not distant. We can know him, know his love, his peace, uh, the God who made us, walks with us. Now that's an amazing thing. So does it mean that Christians should fast and pray? Well, maybe. Because I I don't think we're in exactly the same situation as Levi or the disciples, are we? Because Jesus is not physically here with us. And we're not in the situation that we will always be in either. We have a down payment of our future presence with Jesus and the future experience. Jesus is with us by his spirit. We know something of that relationship and that joy and peace. 
but the full experience, the full party, will only begin into eternity. So what does that mean about Christian experience now? Well, I think we need to be balanced, don't we? Sometimes the, the Christian life will be about celebrating and joy and feeling Jesus close. But there are genuine times for Christians where it will be about praying and fasting and questioning what God is doing and, and sorrow at the way the world is and how it's affecting us. That, that's the Christian life, isn't it? We are caught between two ages. Jesus has come and has given us his Holy Spirit and forgiven our sin. And one day he will return, but in the meantime, uh, we are still experiencing some of the, the pain of sin and death, even though Jesus has defeated it. We are not immune from the pains of the world. But I think as a general principle, this is right, isn't it? That there should be a joy and a richness, even in the midst of the trials and the questions and the struggles. Uh, we have a peace that's beyond human understanding. So that's where we'll stop for today. Jesus brings this new way of living for a new type of follower. I wonder if you can see something of yourself in the people Jesus meets today. A recognition that you need him, uh, that you're a sick person who needs a doctor, a sinner who needs forgiving. Jesus welcomes everyone and invites them in to his new way, not calling the righteous those who think they are acceptable, but calling sinners to repentance. And he offers us a new joy of forgiven sins and intimacy, closeness to God. Now, this passage says something to us as a church as well. A church that follows what we learn in this chapter means that we should be treating one another differently. We should have a new openness and a vulnerability in our relationships. Because there's a new humility within us and a new acceptance of one another. Because Jesus has accepted us. And I think uh, we will seek out opportunities to enjoy together our new life in Jesus. There will be times to celebrate, I think, as a church. We should look for that. Uh, there should be a ready recognition of our own weakness and sin that we are all patients in Jesus' hospital. Our pride should be reducing, our comparing ourselves to one another in the face of grace and forgiveness that we experience. If we follow this chapter, there should be a new motivation to be fishing for people, to be spreading the good news about Jesus because he's promised to work with us in partnership He's doing the hard bit. He just wants us to provide the faith and the nets and the muscles. Jesus begins his revolution. He calls us to be his recruits. Uh, will you follow him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these wonderful portraits of Jesus 
uh, in Luke's Gospel. Uh, Help us this week and over the coming weeks as we uh, study Jesus to grow in our faith, in our love, in our joy, in our humility, uh, in a recognition of our own need for you. Uh, And might Jesus grow in uh, as we magnify him and follow him and obey him and live for him. Amen.